Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Jeet here, national affairs correspondent for The Nation, father of the Twitter essay, comics historian. Welcome to Shortcuts. Uh, good to be here. Today on the show, from the hothouse flowers of journalism school to the slaughterhouse cattle of the journalism business, we will talk about the carnage at Ryerson University and at HuffPost Canada. Also, if you were surprised to learn that Dr. Seuss was racist, wait till you hear about Mickey Mouse. Glad to have you here. Good to be here. Today's episode of Shortcuts is brought to everybody by Tal Bognikov, Sarah Craggs, Liam Flagg, Julia Anderson, Lisa Silvestra, Nikita Urazbiev, Alyssa Frampton, and Michael. Hi, my name is Michael Chapman. I'm an anti-corruption crusader. I support Canada Land because I want to live in a country where truth speaks to power and where small stories have a huge importance. Okay, Jeet, big shakeup at Ryerson School of Journalism. We don't typically cover uh, the politics of J schools, but uh, this drama, I think, requires some attention. Here's what uh, the Toronto Star's Brendan Kennedy reported 
this week. The heads of Ryerson's journalism school resigned Sunday, just hours before a group of current and former students released an open letter accusing the school of fostering, quote, unsafe learning environment, end quote, and failing to support racialized and LGBTQ students. Jeet, did you read this this open letter? I have read the open letter, and I've been following the story um, the way a newsreader would. Like, I've never gone to any J school, let alone Ryerson, so I'm talking about this at some distance. Well, you know, this this show, we're just like reading the stuff as newsreaders and trying to make sense of it. As a newsreader reading the open letter, what did you make of it? I thought the letter brought up a lot of things that are like really major concerns, not just for students, but I think for journalists, that like the media is... Um, been going through a lot of contest and contestation and battles over issues of trauma and representation. And I don't think it's surprising that if this is what's happening in the newsrooms, it would also be happening in J school. So I think that um, the larger frame that we have to take is a kind of economic and, and social one, which is that journalism is in a longstanding sort of economic crisis where a lot of older business models have failed, are failing. There's not a lot of job security. You know, as Gramsci famously said, the old world is dying. The new world is struggling to be born. Now is the time of monsters. So (laughs) (laughs) we are, as was Gramsci, living in the time of monsters. I think a lot of that turmoil feeds into these kind of newsroom battles where you have a cohort, you know, people who are entering into a newsroom culture that's very different than the one that management has experienced. People who are in management came of age at a time when, you know, like it was a much more flourishing industry, but also a much less diverse industry. At a basic level, I think that the complaints can be understood as uh, young people who know that they're going into an industry that is very different than what they're being trained for. It's as if our military schools were run by cavalry officers. And these might be good cavalry officers who know how to lead a horse charge. But, you know, if you're living in an age of guerrilla warfare, that's not, you know, the best people to train you. I want to return to this idea that is fundamentally what the students are requesting is better training for the actual industry that exists. That's an open question we'll return to. But you're engaging with this in a very, like, big thinker point of view. I'm a little thinker. I just want to know what happened. Something prompted this letter, which really is an uh, effort to chronicle years of complaint and issues and and systemic racism and uh, specific incidents, some very serious allegations, uh, teachers harassing students. But a lot of it is like, you don't know when it happened. You don't know who did it. And and it's, it it runs the gamut from like very serious accusations of, of, of racism to like some of the testimonials read to me a bit like school was really hard and it stressed me out and I didn't get adequate help from faculty opening up a question as to like, to what degree is it faculty's role? But like, you know, there's a big spectrum of complaint and there's a lack of specificity. Like there's very few names of who the perpetrators of these things are. Yeah. And so I'm wondering as a newsreader, why was this letter published now? And then the aftermath of the letter that students accused Ryerson J School of systemic institutionalized racism. And then uh, Janice Neal and Lisa Taylor, the two people who run the program, stepped down. I think people could be, you know, excused for drawing a conclusion that they are accepting that there is validity to this charge of racism. And that, like, I guess we're responsible for this racism. So we're stepping down. As I looked into this a little bit, and and actually as as the star looked into it because her story was updated, there is a backstory here, and uh, I'd like to share it with you. Sure. So listeners of Shortcuts might remember uh, me talking about Jonathan Bradley. 
young aspiring journalist, Ryerson J School student, worked for the, one of the papers there, the Eye Opener, and, and also writes for the Post Millennial and devout Catholic. And I think to make a long story short, he, he found himself, well, I think he was an active agent who got in a big conflict with his fellow students. Some of it you kind of had to feel for him because a private Twitter conversation in which he revealed that he takes an interpretation of the Bible, that homosexuality is a sin. Those private messages were publicly shared, which you know mm. confirmed people's suspicions of him that he's this homophobe, but also I think was a gross transgression of his privacy. But it was a bit of a moot point because it turns out that he tweeted that stuff publicly once as well. So here they are um, with this, you know, kind of like out there. Yes, my, my Christianity means that being gay is a sin. So he's a homophobe. And the fellow students are like, what are we going to do with this guy? He launches a human rights complaint that as for his religious beliefs, he's being unfairly ostracized and shut out of uh, his job at this newspaper. And this just becomes a huge issue at the school because – the school has responsibilities to him as a student, sure. and yet they have responsibilities to the rest of the students as well. And what came to a head is that students were piling on Jonathan Bradley, some of them with like kind of funny stuff saying like, hey, every time you launch a human rights complaint, I'm going to kiss a girl, as mm -hmm. one female student put it. But other people actually made accusations about him, allegations and allegedly defamatory comments about Jonathan Bradley. And Bradley said, take that down. That's defamation. We have defamation law. And if you don't if you don't remove that tweet, I will sue you for defamation. And the students then went to faculty and said, he's making us feel unsafe because he's threatening us with lawsuits. Yeah. And that led to a uh, – usually these like meetings of the uh, student governance with J School at Ryerson have like, you know, a few people show up. This time, almost 100 people showed up to this public Zoom call meeting uh, last month. And this is where the students, like like the big issue of the day was, what is faculty going to do about Jonathan Bradley? Let's hear a little bit of that. It says a lot that a student in our faculty in the School of Journalism is threatening uh, the livelihoods of journalism students. It's threatening them through income and using it to intimidate them to take down their opinions on social media. To me... I feel unsafe hearing that. It makes me feel unsafe because my opinions as a student are not valued or, or heard by this individual. And he's threatening students doing that. So it's creating a community that is feeling unsafe. And it's kind of disheartening that we're seeing someone still kind of have a voice that's like negatively affecting us and how we feel in RSJ. So I just thought you guys should like know that on behalf of the first year students. It just seems like it could set a very dangerous precedent for what RSJ will and will not tolerate. What capacity does RSJ have to reprimand them? Please don't do this to your future student again, please. I'm asking you to answer as the ally you claim you are to the students. What are you going to do to make RSJ a safe space for students? When I hear you say that you're in third year and you have not felt safe at any time in our program, that you have felt attacked, I stopped breathing. The fact that I'm hearing that in your sixth semester here is alarming to me. You could hear there uh, Janice Neal talking about how she takes some responsibility. It feels terrible for her to learn that students are unsafe. Lisa Taylor remarked that, you know, if, if students don't feel that she's in their corner, then yes, she's got to go. They're staying at the school as instructors, by the way, mm -hmm. but uh, they have left their positions running the J school. What do you make of that? There's like a whole bunch of different separate issues, one of which is that like, like I think like sort of like the rights talk makes it very hard for people to compromise 
but we see that on both corners with both like, you know, making the human rights complaints uh, and then using this language of safety. But again, I, I think I would like kind of emphasize that, you know, this is not a unique to Ryerson situation. We're kind of seeing this, the very same issues playing out in newsrooms. And like some of that is just like it's an outgrowth of therapeutic culture, you know, which has like given people vocabulary for talking about this sort of distress, which also has genuine roots. I mean, like it is the case that like we're much more aware of trauma. Some of my conservative friends have a natural reaction to this of saying, well, it's a kind of, you know, religious guilt language of the expiation of sins and it reinforces people's conditions. But a language of trauma comes from the fact that people are actually traumatized <laughs> and we, we've developed ways to talk about this. But it's also, I mean, I, I have to go back to this. It's like people who are like in a kind of precarious situation. Um, and I think that precariousness like governs everything. There's an instability to this institution. I mean, like for me, the biggest question is like, is it even ethical to have J school? That's a good question. Why would it be unethical to have J school? I'm curious how, how you take that. Okay, like I'm a teacher, would it be ethical for me to take money from students for them to go in a profession where I know they might not find a job? In fact, statistically are likely to like end up in something else like public relations. And But it's also in an industry that's in such a deep distress that they're going to be experiencing a lot of financial hardship, but also the sort of emotional and psychological hardship. Can you honestly take money from people to send them into that? I, I don't know. I mean, like I'm not saying... Everyone in J school should resign and become a cobbler. But I mean, like, it's something that I, I think that, you know, people should ask themselves. I felt that for a long time. Look, you, you can study anything. You can study all kinds of things that, that don't equip you to make money. You can study ancient Sanskrit, you, can, you know. But if you're going to have a vocational training program with, like, internships and, like, leading into the industry, at what point are you just, like, stealing money from people when there is no industry for them to, <laughs> you know, to graduate into? I'm of two minds about this stuff, right? On the one hand... I have the kind of a grumbly old man like reaction. It would never have occurred to me in a million years that my professors were responsible for my mental health or that if I encountered an offensive idea in school, that that was like the fault of my professors or something, you know? But again, I was not a racialized student, you know, in, in a, dealing with systemic racism. When you hear these students like turn to faculty and talking about like, you know, you, you're asking us to cover a lot of traumatic things here. I'm like, well, that is good training for journalism. You know, and, and actually having uh, higher ups who are indifferent <laughs> to your suffering because you just got to get the job done. Like a lot of this was people saying like, oh, you know, I, I had a loved one die and you didn't give me time off school or things like that. Like that, th those are among the complaints. I'm like, how is this person going to function in this really tough business? Yeah. And should the school, like at school, you're a customer, you know, you're not a customer when you work in a media company, like media management uh, will often like make some noises about, you know, yeah, we want to make this good environment. We want everybody to be healthy here, but ultimately they're businesses and, and they don't owe the employees the same things that like, you know, the money comes from the students in a school. Well, that, that is another factor that this sort of consumer model of education does lead to these complaints. But I, I mean, I just also think of it in generational terms, which is that the people who are in their late teens, 20s, and 30s, they know that the world that they're getting is not the world that older people have gotten. They're not going to get, you know, the good steady jobs for 20 years. They're not going to get the pension. And to be honest, like, you know, when they're my age or older, you know, they're going to inherit a doomed planet that is going to be in its death knell. So the fact that they have decided to focus within those conditions 
on emphasizing like mental health and wellness like kind of makes sense. It does. And and you can you can actually feel like, well, why should they just accept the way things are? Why shouldn't they demand these things? That actually is really good. Maybe maybe we can change things if that's the case, you know? The core existential fact is we're talking about people who are screwed. Uh, they're screwed as a generation and they're screwed as people entering into this, you know, uh, very precarious profession. This is the strategy that has people are cobbling together to deal with this. Now, one could say, you know, there are other approaches to take, which would include a more materialist approach. And that's my politics, right? Like my own politics is to prefer to say like, well, you guys try to start a union. But I, I don't discuss, I don't think that even if you're a hardcore materialist, which I am, or a historical materialist, like you have to acknowledge people's existential psychological issues, which is a part of material reality as well. But the material outcome of this strategy was pretty imperfect because the faculty that stepped down who were not accused of anything, you know, like now somebody else has got to come in and, you know, try to clean up what's going on there. The faculty that just left actually improved the representation of people of color and other marginalized groups and faculty, like from like 11% of Ryerson J school faculty to like 30%. They met demands for a course on Black Lives Matter. They were a very responsive faculty by some measures to these types of demands from students. Now they're out. And it's kind of ugly. Like, are they out because they're like, yeah, we, we didn't do a good job? Or are they out because like, why should they answer for, like somebody needs to tell these students defamation law and the law around speech is what allows us to function as journalists. We can't protect you from making an error and perhaps defaming someone and then they threaten to sue you. That's a very good lesson for you as a future journalist. Yeah, yeah. We all speak in the same legal regimen whereby the rules are anyone can sue anyone. So be careful what you say. We have no purview to remove this person's right to sue you or to threaten to sue you. Like those are good lessons, you know? They are good lessons. But I mean, I, I, I would just note like going to like um, the Human Rights Commission itself is kind of a red flag of a kind of trollish character. Oh, agreed. Agreed. And I, I do think that there's a legitimate kind of issue here that there are these moral absolutes that are very hard to negotiate. Now, liberalism has traditionally tried to move these absolute issues into the realm of process. And so, so to take them out of like uh, political contestation. But at some issue, like if you have someone who believes that, you know, like, homosexuals are inherently sinful, how does that person fit into like an environment where there are openly out people? And, and when one sees this like in a lot of like legal court cases, one approach is the, the American right approach, which is to prioritize religious freedom and to say that, you know, if you, you bake a cake and don't want to sell to a gay wedding, that's your religious freedom. That's your freedom of expression. These are issues that are very hard to negotiate because they are in these absolute moral terms. I mean, I don't blame either the students or the Ryerson faculty that they have a hard time coming up with any sort of balance because no one has. Maybe impossible, but I think that the way that we've worked it out in liberal societies is just like a certain sense of like tolerance in that like, yes, you are going to go out into the world and be surrounded by people who have aberrant attitudes and opinions and, you know, nobody should like agree to be dehumanized, but I don't know what they can do about this guy's religious beliefs. Oh, I do think that that kind of politicized religiosity which is not really rooted in religious teaching, tries to like troll on these issues. I don't want to hold any uh, judgment about the behavior of the Ryerson um, faculty to this, ex except to note that these are very hard issues. But I mean, you're saying like, well, the students are going to find a hard time in uh, uh, the world of journalism. I think that's true. But I also would emphasize 
that a lot of these battles are in fact being fought out in actual uh, newsrooms. Maybe not so much in Canada, but like I think in America, we've seen many newsrooms where there's been a kind of revolt of young staff against older management. Yeah, and a lot of it is a lot of it is long overdue, and it's happening. It's happening most robustly in you know solvent newsrooms like the New York Times. It can't happen in a newsroom that itself gets canceled. You want to talk about cancel culture? Let's talk about HuffPost Canada. I noted that one of the people providing a testimonial, uh, journalist uh, Al Donato, former Ryerson student, is one of the casualties of Huffington Post Canada mm-hmm. just having the lights shut out. And to tell people who haven't heard what happened, you know, after like, you know, more or less of a, a decade long run here, HuffPost Canada was part of, you know, there was all of these digital brands coming in, Vice Canada, BuzzFeed set up Canada, and like, oh, maybe this is where things are going to move, you know? Maybe we'll have these big American tech companies, tech journalism companies set up their, their Canadian bureaus, and, and that's the future of Canadian journalism. Well, they were acquired by BuzzFeed. Then HuffPost Canada said that they were going to be unionizing. And then the way that this played out was pretty awful. Employees were called to a Zoom meeting. The password was spring is here, which sounds very nice and inviting. And at that Zoom meeting, they were told that 47 of them would be laid off You'll only know if you still have a job if you don't receive an email by one. And the layoffs included the entirety of HuffPost Canada, including management, gone. How did you describe that, Jeet? Uh, well, I think uh, it's sociopathic behavior, like, like the, just how they handle I mean, like, obviously, if a company is making a go of it, they will close up shop. But the way they handled it, I don't think you should treat humans like that. The broader issue, I think, is that there was a model here that was never a very viable model. Like, none of these companies, I think ever really came close to um, profitability, but there was always another sucker. Like, there was always another uh, investor that you could bring in there, you could tread water, and like at a certain point, you know, like you can't anymore. And there's a kind of monopolistic urge as well. Like I think BuzzFeed buying up their competitor, well, you know what happens when like you buy up your competitor, right? Yeah. Synergy is happening. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. It's very sad. There's a lot of incredibly talented people who did really good work. Uh, HuffPost in the United States as well. At some point, you have some profitable companies like New York Times and the Washington Post, but these are like arcs, right? And how much can you hold on an arc? Well, typically like two of each animal, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I mean, like the, the floods are here, man. Yeah. What boats are we building? <laughs> To me, this is the death knell for, you know, like Vice Canada is a shell of what it was. BuzzFeed Canada doesn't really exist. They retained some employees and folded them into BuzzFeed. There is no like specific Canadian operation. To me, what this what this says is the death of that promise that these models of like these 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 tech companies from like 10, 15 years ago or these media companies rather from 10, 15 years ago that were treated almost like, you know, buzzy, hot tech startups. And as such, were speculated on, were gobbled up by this company, then traded to that company. And the idea was that that kind of capitalism and, you know, venture capitalism and that kind of consolidation could be applied to the news business. Eh, error, you know, wrong. There may be a viable solvent way forward for, for media. I think it's on a much, on a micro scale. I think that this is like, let's learn a lesson from this and, you know, let's pour out uh, some liquor for everybody who did good work at HuffPost Canada. I remember when they were like the big bad, oh, oh HuffPost is going to aggregate the real journalists out of existence. Well, the legacy stuff isn't working and neither is the aggregation stuff anymore and, and uh, neither is the speculation stuff. I just keep waiting for this business to just fucking humble itself and, uh, and realize it can be done on a micro scale. It's not sexy anymore. It's like opening a barber shop. It's like opening a little bistro on the corner. It's like opening a convenience store. If you know, if you can keep your nut low and provide 
a little bit of journalism for your block or for your beat, you may be able to eke out a living and let's pay ourselves. Jeet, we duly note stories that deserve wider attention. What do you have? I just did a column on The Nation about this, but there's this thing called the Lincoln Project. They uh, were these former Republicans, you know, people who'd work for John McCain at Mitt Romney, who said we are opposed to Trump. And they raised a ton of money, like $87 million to do these anti-Trump ads. And they got a lot of votes from a lot of liberals at like, you know, Mother Jones and other places that are saying these guys are great. They're heroes. And the New York Times had a great expose, just like what incredible grifters these guys were, where like, you know, they paid themselves like tens of millions of dollars. They had contractors who were put on the board. So people they're paying money to are also getting like money on the board. And they got kickbacks from like all the people they're paying money to. And these guys, I mean, talk about business models. You know, they were thinking of um, taking this $80 million company and becoming a billion dollar media company. And what has unraveled them is that like one of them turned out to be a sexual predator. And uh, the Times has found, you know, more than 20 men who have said like he has done very inappropriate things, including someone who was as young as 14. Uh, So um, the flip side of what we're talking about, the economic problems, is that this is really an age of grifters and of montebanks and charlatans and scam artists. And these guys are at the top of the profession. Duly noted. I would like to duly note uh, some of the International Women's Day fails. Uh, Hershey's. Hershey's. Get it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Dad joke. Dad joke. <laughs> well, they're not done yet. I'm her. She. They also they also had to offer. Yes. Thank you. That's that's great. Hershey's. Uh, Burger King. Women belong in the kitchen tweets Burger King UK, followed up by, if they want to, of course, yet only 20% of chefs are women. Oh, I uh, that's a good one, Burger King. They belong in the kitchen, but you're actually on the side of the women if they <laughs> want to be professional chefs. Way to go, Burger King. Deleted that tweet. And then a bit closer to home, we have our, our Canadian journalists. It's a, it's a, it was, it's been pointed out how many journalists like took International Women's Day as an opportunity to say like, thanks to all the women in my life who like help clean up. And like, it's just a strange flex. <laughs> and um, when Evan Solomon was thanking the powerful and brilliant women in his life, uh, Globe and Mail's Robert Fife said, and your producers who make you look smart on radio and TV, all women. <laughs> so let's. Thanks. One, one, one for the ladies from Fife. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month 
at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. If it could happen to Dr. Seuss, it might happen to you. Dr. Seuss went from being a beloved childhood author to worse than Hitler in just a matter of days. So, Gene, uh, I'm sure that you heard about this already, but last week, the business that now runs the Dr. Seuss brand, it's not the Seuss family, the rights were sold to, to a business, they announced that they're going to stop publishing six different books because, quote, they portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong. And uh, a bunch of, I think, lesser titles that I, I, I'm i aware of, like, Mulberry Street, because I think it was yes. his first, but the rest of them, I don't know, I didn't really even know about these books. Mm-hmm. They're, they're going out of print, and people lost their fucking minds as if Dr. Seuss is being canceled. You and I both like cartoons, but you actually are kind of a scholar of comics and cartoons. First of all, did you have you ever read any of these uh, out-of-print Dr. Seuss books to your kids? Um, I think I, I read to myself Mulberry Street, but you no, know, no, these are not, we have a lot of Dr. Seuss in our house, but uh, uh, we have not had those. These are, in general, lesser-known titles. It's a very strange argument to make that like a publisher taking books out of print is censorship because publishers do that all the time. I mean, that's, I think, the, you know, the obvious stupidity of the rage. This is not canceling Dr. Seuss. This is not censorship or banning of Dr. Seuss. In fact, it's not even like a moral decision, I don't think, from the publisher. And there really are some pretty damn racist depictions in some of these books, which is like totally normal for cartooning at that time, not yeah. to excuse it, but like not not terribly surprising. I think they're just protecting the Dr. Seuss brand. And it, it kind of backfired because that gave people like occasion to go through some of Dr. Seuss's early editorial cartoons, which are gruesomely racist, ghastly and horrifically racist. <laughs> so it was not good for the Seuss brand. Okay, so there's a bunch of different issues kind of at play. One is the sort of, you know, history of uh, cartooning and children's books and the way things change. Let, let's start from the first fact. Dr. Seuss wrote and drew books for kids, right? Now, one could take a totally free speech approach as I do, like I have like Robert Crumb and Nabokov and Desaad on my bookshelf, but I'm not reading them to like my six-year-olds, right? <laughs> like, like you do make a, I think people should make a distinction between what's appropriate for adults and what's appropriate for kids. And actually, as you're right, I, I've edited many books on old cartoons, uh, which include a lot of racist imagery. Now, now children's books change a lot. Because people's attitudes of what's acceptable to children change a lot. If you go through the classics of 19th century German kids literature, you will find characters that are gouging up people's eyes and like kids that are th- sucking their thumb and a guy who has scissors for hands, 
the original uh, Edward Scissorhand who like, you know, chops off their thumbs. I would not read those to my kids, right? Would you? I don't know. No, no. I mean, you know, there's Brothers Grimm stories where, like, the raven crows to the children, don't go into that house. A Jew lives there. Like, you know, there's that was the the cautionary tale of the Brothers Grimm. And there's something specific when we're talking about cartoons. That's the other thing with Dr. Seuss, with uh, Theodore Gazelle. He's originally a cartoonist, and he came out of newspaper comics. Uh, he did, actually did um, a newspaper comic in the 30s, Haji, which is kind of like a Arabian nice thing, which probably also should not be read to kids these days. Uh, but but the, the early 20th century um, newspaper comics and animated cartoons really came out of like vaudeville and the minstrel show. Like virtually all the cartoonists of that era did uh, vaudeville and did minstrelry, um, including ironically, like George Harriman, who was an mm-hmm. African-American cartoonist who passed for white, but then like, you know, with his, uh, white cartoonists, if they did minstrel shows, he he also put blackface. So there was like a black man pretending to be white, pretending to be black. An incredible cartoonist, Crazy Cat Nignats by, by Herman. And, and it goes on and on. And the interesting thing is that a lot of these cartoonists brought in that, that minstrel show imagery, but also like animal Im- imagery and mixed it all together. And like when if you look at someone like Mickey Mouse, that's coming out of anthropomorphic animals. And also um, uh, the jazz singer, right? Like Mickey with the white gloves and the kind of uh, if you, if you if you take off the ears, it's exactly a minstrel show image, which of the type that uh, Justin Trudeau loves so much. <laughs> so, Jeet, tell me if, I, if 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 my history is correct, because you've studied this in a bit more of a scholarly fashion yeah. than I have. I'm just I'm just a fan, but it was fascinating to me to go to, to you know being a fan of comics and tracing it back to realize like it's not just that like okay people were racist back then and it crept into comics. You cannot extract racism from cartooning and comics any more than you can extract it from the history of America. So you got Mickey Mouse, as you say, like, and I look at like Bimbo the dog and like these you know you point out the white gloves, but this is like a Sambo character. You know, Windsor McKay, who is the father of animation and did these beautiful little Nemo, which is filled with racist stuff. He was a vaudeville performer who would yeah. bring his Gertie the Dinosaur onto the stage. So like minstrelsy and blackface and cartoons and comics, as you say, it's all interlinked. Mickey Mouse, American as Apple Pie, is kind of like this – like. It's interesting to me. It's it's really complicated stuff because the Fleischer brothers who had Bimbo the dog and Betty Boop, mm-hmm. they did some really racist cartoons, you know? Yeah. And it's it's a lot easier to see the blackface connection in those cartoons. Mm-hmm. And then you've got like the floating head of, of like Louis Armstrong as a cannibal. It's horrible stuff. And yet the Fleischer brothers were these like New York Jewish cartoonists doing really funny racy cartoons. And this was Louis Armstrong's first screen appearance. These, he was collaborating with these jazz cartoons. Like this was like a, a, a way in which a lot of jazz culture made it to the mainstream. And then Disney goes and whitewashes that all. And it's not as apparent with Mickey Mouse that this is a minstrel character. And his team are all farm boys. And the humor is all farm boy humor. And Walt Disney's a crazy racist. There's a lot of complication. I mean, even like within blackface, I mean, you had black entertainers like, you know, Burt Williams or uh, Sammy Davis Jr., you know, who uh, performed in that way. And in some ways, it was a way in which the broader white America, that was the only uh, uh, grounds on which they were able to listen to black music and was a way in which black music became American music. And so it's like hugely important. This is how, you know, American culture was made. Uh, and it's like totally tied out with these kind of like racial imagery. And, but they're very ambiguous as well. I mean, like, I think a lot of people who study 
uh, this stuff will emphasize that there's like ways in which like, there's a benign aspect of emphasizing creativity, freedom. Think of Mickey Mouse, right? Like he's a kind of, you know, jolly spirited guy. And that these, these um, minstrel characters had a liveliness that was not allowed to the white characters, but, but still very complicated. And it's all in there. And which is why I don't like the fact that these books are now going to be out of print for brand management's sake. My solution is to have Dr. Seuss, but only for adults, have scholarly archival editions that like, you know, have, explain the historical context, explain the importance and keep those books in print. Now, the real problem is copyright, right? Like you have this thing, the Gazelle estate, which is not connected to the family, was actually, I think, owned by Random House. And they're acting like Disney, like they have this brand that they want to protect. And actually, I think that they actually did work out well for them because they got rid of the books uh, that displeased librarians and refurbished the brand. And then also everyone's worried that Dr. Seuss is going to disappear. So like 30 of the top 50 books on Amazon earlier this week were Dr. Seuss. Like they're selling a ton of books. They are, but they, but but they reminded Twitter not just of those um, anti-Japanese cartoons, but there's earlier anti-black stuff by Seuss that's very much you won't be seeing that at the Seuss theme park uh, in Florida. Well, actually, I think there's a Seuss library, and the way actually they do it is they have a room with this sort of stuff, which is for adults only, right? Like I think that is the solution. Like I don't want this stuff eradicated from history. Like I actually think it's important to know the history. The history of this stuff is the history of America. Like you cannot understand American culture without understanding this stuff. That's absolutely true. I actually honestly think that the sort of copyright hold and these like crazy copyright laws, which are actually come out of Mickey Mouse and Disney and their corporate power, really makes it difficult to have proper conversations and leads to a situation where it's all or nothing. And, you know, you have like Toronto Sun type demagogues taking uh, advantage of the conversation. So I really feel like it's an unhealthy situation. But again, historical materialist that I am, I want to emphasize the role of corporate power here as, as really like setting the terms by which these things are debated. And I don't think that a company that has nothing to do with the Seuss family should be making these decisions for books that are nearly 100 years old. We do not like it with a mouse. No, I'm sorry. I won't even. I won't. I won't. Thanks, Jeet. Okay, thank you. That's your Canada Land Shortcuts, everybody. You can email me about it. I'm at jesse at canadaland.com. I read what you send me. And we're on Twitter at Canada Land. Where can people find you, Jeet? On Twitter at herejeet.com. I am at The Nation Magazine, where I'm a regular columnist. And um, to maybe offer your listeners a promise, there's, I think, a very exciting venture that I'm going to be starting up uh, later in the summer. All right. We need more of those. We're looking for that. Our website is canadaland.com. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Kevin Sexton. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt, and our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, you should support what we do, and we'll give you stuff. It's as simple as that. Just click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com join to support this independent journalism company right here in Canada. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land, and this is about you. 
You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 